old school. But you know, a little music ministry secret, the first trick to him is drop the key. The, uh, you guys did a great job. I'm not criticizing you, but as someone trying to sing them, it's like, oh, Lord. Um, they're, they're written for a different time and a different people. But um, they're beautiful songs. If you ever have to hear hymns as they're written in the parts, they're actually very beautiful. We don't do the parts, so we miss the beauty of the way they're written and the different uh, things put around it. And it really is, uh, if you ever get a chance to listen to hymns the way they're written, it's, it's really actually beautiful. Um, so I want to encourage you to do that. So good morning. Today is Palm Sunday. Uh, it also begins what some call Passion Week. So uh, I thought this morning, before we hit Easter next week, we'll actually look at Palm Sunday this morning. And as much as we can, um, the week leading up to, to Easter. Um, it's a full week. It kind of uh, was eye-opening to me to spend some time really looking at the full week that Jesus spent before he was crucified. There's a lot. And we're gonna, actually going to give you an overview in, in a minute. Um, but I want to share this first. For those of you who are maybe um, new to the faith or you didn't grow up in the church and sometimes things and terms are new to you and you feel like, gee, I must be dumb because I didn't know that. I'm going to show you something I'm dumb about. Um, I didn't grow up in the church. And so, <laughs> to be completely honest with you, the term Christ's passion, passion of the Christ, and, or anything that relates to the term passion, I just assumed always meant his love for us drove him to the cross. He had a passion to complete the work of God. That's completely idiotic. It doesn't mean that at all. Um, the word passion comes from the Latin word passio, which means to suffer. So when we hear the passion of the Christ and Christ's passion, and you'll see in your, in your hymnal there's hymns that are sectioned off for Christ's passion, really what we're talking about is his suffering. And what this week leads up to is that moment, those, that time on the cross when he completes the work that he was sent to do. So everything about when we hear the passion of Christ, that's really what we're talking about, um, what he was sent here to do. Um, so I'm going to ask Josh to put up on the, uh, on the screen uh, real quick. But I also want to share with you that if you put a harmony of the Gospels together um, and just focus on, on this, this week, you will find that in Matthew, it covers chapters 21 to 27. In Mark, it's chapters 11 to 15. In Luke, it's 19 to 23, and in John, it's 12 to 19. And some of those chapters are like 40, 50 plus verses long. This is a very full week. The Gospels cover a lot of Jesus' life in this one week. There's a lot that comes to it. So I've asked Josh to kind of put up this chart that I found that's pretty, pretty all-encompassing. And we're not going to cover all this, but I just want to give us an idea of, of the magnitude of what Jesus did this week. And we're going to start with him arriving uh, in Jerusalem on the colt. And we're actually going to look at that in a little bit. And then he weeps for Jerusalem. He spends time at the temple. He returns back to Bethany. Then he comes back the next day and he curses the fig tree. He cleanses the temple. The crowd reacts. He leaves Jerusalem again. He comes back, sees the fig tree. The question about authority, what authority has Jesus come in? He gives parables, the two sons, the wicked husbandsmen, uh, the great supper. He teaches about paying tribute to Caesar and who the taxes belong to. He talks about the resurrection with the Sadducees. He gives the lesson on the great commandment. What, why, how do you love God? What is the most important commandment? Love thy neighbor as thyself and love God with all thy heart. He explains what David's son means. If you call, how, can you, uh, 
How can David say, the Lord said to my Lord, is, is the parable there that he gives, teaching that he is actually Lord. He, he condemns the scribes and Pharisees. He laments over Jerusalem. He gives the teaching on the widow's might. This is all happening in the temple. Greeks come to seek him. There are people who don't believe. The judgment of the word. The Olivet Discourse. He predicts the temple's destruction. He gives uh, a message on the signs before the end, how to know the end times are coming. His persecution coming. The desolation spoken of in Daniel. He warns of false Christs and false prophets. He tells about the return, the coming of the Son of Man. How to know when the time is. The fig tree parable. He tells us to take heed and watch. He moves on with other parables. The parables of the ten virgins being prepared for the Lord's return. Can you guys hear it? All right. You keep it up all right? Because I have no idea where you are. Cool. All right. Parable of the ten virgins. I want to make sure him and I are talking about the same thing. There's the plot to kill Jesus. The betrayal. The preparation for the Passover. Now we go into the upper room. He washes the disciples' feet. He foretells of his betrayal. He tells of Peter's betrayal. He talks about the betrayer. Judas. They have the Last Supper. He gives the new commandment of love. If I, as I have loved you, love one another. He talks about Peter's denial. The swords, the farewell. Now we get into John chapter 14. This is all Thursday night. And he gives the let not your hearts be troubled, for I have overcome the world. The promise of the Helper, the Holy Spirit. My peace I give to you, not as others. The gift of peace. I am the vine. All these verses that we have read over and over, we've, we've read so many times, in their own, taking them out of context, all this is going on right before his crucifixion. He spends this much time teaching all these things. I'm going to skip a lot. Um, then you have the high priestly prayer. Then he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then he's betrayed and arrested. And we go through what we know is, is the, the crucifixion. That's a really full week. That's a lot to study. And what I want to encourage us to do, if you, if you have the time and the inclination, um, I would encourage you to spend this week going through these verses and preparing yourself for Easter and thinking about all the things that Jesus spent. These are all things that Jesus felt were important. This is the end of his life. He spent three years with these guys. People have been following him, but this, most of this is his teaching directly to the disciples. And he's spending a very specific amount of time focusing on these things which tells us they are very important. When you get near the end is when you focus. I'm not saying the Lord wasn't focused. He had to do a lot of other things for three years before he got to this. But think about when you're leaving your job, you're going to train your replacement. There's a lot of things you've got to teach them. There's a lot of things you've got to write down. There's a lot of things that have to be passed on. And so in this last week of Jesus Christ, there is a compression of a lot of important teachings. There's no way I could touch on them in the time we have. I'm only going to highlight a few things of this week. Um, so that's what, that's what I want to get into. But I just want to encourage us um, to think about it. You know, you know, the highlights, even right before he goes into uh, Jerusalem, as I spilled the water, you know, I was almost not going to put the cap on because so, it's easier to drink. And I said, let me put the cap on. He can't be taught. All right. So right before he, he goes into Jerusalem, he has just raised Lazarus. So word is being spread now. This is the guy who raised Lazarus. So let's turn to John chapter 12. 
Gospel of John. And again, some of the highlights is he's raised Lazarus. He does the triumphal entry. He's going to cleanse the temple. He's going to teach in the temple. He's going to observe Passover. He's going to wash the disciples' feet. They're going to share the Last Supper. He's going to institute the Lord's Supper. He's going to pray the high priestly prayer. He's going to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then he's going to be arrested and then he's going to be crucified. A lot of stuff coming up in this week. If you turn me to John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast... Now, they're observing the Feast of Unleavened Bread, by the way. This is what goes along with Passover. People are coming into Jerusalem to observe Passover. What observed with Passover is uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. See the exclamation point? People are not gathering going, oh, is that Jesus? Oh, wow, I've heard about him. They're throwing branches down. In the other Gospels, it talks about when, they, when he took the colt, they put their coats on the colt. In fact, if we read a little bit further, then Jesus, when he had found a young, young donkey, sat on it. And the other Gospels picked this up a little bit earlier before the people started screaming. It says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. In the other Gospels, it also counts that people put their coats on the donkey before he sat on it. And as he's walking, as the donkey's leading him through the streets, they're putting their coats on the streets for the donkey to walk on it. A sign of submission and humility and recognition of his authority. We often, now this is called the triumphal entry. That's why it's often labeled in, in the Bibles. He comes in triumphantly. Do you imagine this day someone coming into town triumphantly riding on a donkey? We don't view donkeys that way. That's pretty much not the way we see them. It's probably cartoons' fault. But that's just the way we look at donkeys. They're not this noble creature. But what we have to understand is in Christ's time, that's the way a king rode into town. That's a sign of nobility and royalty. If you come in on a horse, you're coming to conquer. If you come in on a donkey, you're coming in peace. But it is not a poor man's vehicle. It's a rich man's vehicle. And so for them to take this, the Lord has need of it, as we know in the Gospels. Give this to Jesus. The Lord has needed it for him to ride in. And all these people are screaming, Hosanna, and throwing down palm branches. And they're putting their coats down for the donkey to ride on it. Your coat is your precious thing. You don't have many possessions, but you've got a coat. And you're throwing it down so he can walk on it. That's a sign of submission. But we need to realize he's not coming in with his head hung low. He's not. He's coming in as a king. This is the way a king rides into town. The palm branches are actually a symbol of joy and victory throughout Scripture. And we'll see, actually, maybe we'll get a chance to look at it in Revelation as well. In the future, people throw down palm branches. But throughout history, the palm branches are thrown down as a sign of victory and joy. Something's been accomplished and we're celebrating it. That's why they throw down the palm branches. They're seeing who they believe to be the Messiah. This is the one who's done all these things. This is the one who raised a man from the dead. I just heard about it. It just happened. Let's run out and greet this man. We are oppressed by the Romans. We want freedom. God promised us since the day of David, a king would come who would free us. This must be him. So let's throw down our palms because the victor is coming. 
Victory is coming. Unfortunately, they don't realize the actual victory he's bringing. They're looking for him to overthrow the Romans and set them free with a kingdom. There is a victory coming. He is coming in to bring victory. It's not the one they're looking for. So they're right that he's the Messiah. They're wrong in what they're expecting him to do. But going back to the donkey, if you would turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 1, please. First Kings chapter 1, and we're going to pick it up in verse 29. At this point, I'll give you a little update, save us a little time. King David is dying. And his son, Adonijah, is taking over the throne. He's, he's basically overthrowing the, the, the kingdom, and he's taking his place on the throne. And uh, Bathsheba comes to David and says, remember, you promised that Solomon would be king. So we pick it up in verse 29. And the king took an oath. This is pretty much the last words of David, almost. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly, Solomon your son shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, so I certainly will do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the earth and did homage to the king and said, Let my lord, King David, live forever. And King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. And so they came before the king. And the king also said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord and have Solomon my son, listen now, ride on my own mule and take him down to Gihon. There let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel and blow the horn and say, Long live King Solomon. Then you shall come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, and he shall be king in my place. For I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. The king rides in. Solomon rides in on David's mule. Not his beautiful Arabian horse. His mule. And all the people see Solomon on David's mule and go, David just made him king. There is um, penalty by death to ride the king's mule, to sit on the king's throne, to hold the king's scepter. These things are not allowed. These are only for the king. And David says, take Solomon, my son, put him on my mule that everyone knows when they see it. Right? We, we think of mules, and, and we picture you know, the, the, the guy in, in Columbia climbing up the mountain getting coffee beans. Right? No, this is a beautiful beast. This is a groomed beast. And everyone looks at it and goes, that's the king's. And Solomon's on it. And where he sends him down is basically to parade him in front of everyone. This is not a secret thing. He's parading him. We see in Jesus riding into town. And they say, Hosanna, the son of David, has come. They know the sign because God has already established it in the pattern from David. Now here's... I'm going to try and put this together so it makes sense. makes sense to me. The, the picture that I see is many, but one is, you know, Jesus is of the line of Solomon on Mary's line. It's in Luke's Gospel. However, 
He is not a king like David. He fulfills the prophecy as being a king like David, a king from David's line. But he's not because he's sinless and he's perfect. And David sinned and Solomon sinned and every king after them sinned. So there's a picture there. So I look at it like Jesus is a high priest, but he's a high priest like Melchizedek, not like Aaron. Jesus is the king, but he's not like David. He's from the line, but he's not like David. Here's the special and unique thing. Um, I can't remember if it's in John or if it's in the other Gospels, to be honest with you. I've had so many things spinning in my head from four different Gospels. Um, but the, the mule that, David, uh, that Jesus rides on, this colt, has never been ridden on before. Solomon rides on David's mule. Jesus comes with a new kingdom and he rides on a mule that's never been ridden before. He's new. Jesus continues to fulfill every prophecy. And we go through these chapters, we will see prophecy after prophecy. But this was an important one, that he came in this way. He comes in peace. Jesus comes into town, and they're looking for a king who's going to overthrow the, the ruling party, but he doesn't come in that way. He doesn't come in on a horse with an army, because he's bringing a different kingdom. They're looking for power and position. He's coming as the Prince of Peace. I don't know about you, but that's the way he came into my life. He didn't come into my life as a conqueror of war. He came in as the Prince of Peace and won me over because he's a God of mercy and grace. And I think that's the way Christ should be shared. That's the way he wants to come into every life. He's not a threat. He's a king. And we need to share him in that way. God is introducing to humanity the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So it comes in in peace. It does not come by dominance. He's come to set slaves free, not make people feel like they're enslaved. Everyone who's conquered Israel up to this point, including the Romans, has come by force. God's not going to bring in his kingdom in that same way because it's not like man's kingdoms. Christ is not going to come like man and conquer. He's going to come as the suffering servant, as the Messiah King. Yeah, he came in lowly on a cult. But he wasn't sneaking in the back door. He really came in boldly. Which is why they call it the triumphal entry. There's another part to the story. Turn to Revelation 19.
Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, righteousness, he judges and makes war. You laughing at me? Oh, okay. All right. Laughing at something else? All right. All right. You can laugh at me. I just want to know. I'll be in on it. Um, righteousness. He came in righteousness. He judges and makes war. In Revelation 19, when things come to their fruition, he's going to come on a horse. That's when he comes in on a horse. But right now, he came into the world on a mule because he's coming in peace. He's come to overthrow man's hearts, but by peace, by mercy, by grace. So that's the way he came. But let us not be mistaken that there's not going to be another visit. And this time he will come on a horse. And he will make war. And he will win the war. He will win the war. And there will be no more. If we could turn, please, to Luke 19. In Luke 19, again, the triumphal entry is accounted here. But we pick it up in verse 38. The people are crying out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They are quoting Psalm 118. These sections of the Psalms are part of the Psalms that people would sing when they're on their way up to temple. We turn to Psalm 118, please. I found it interestingly coincidental of these two sections that are in Psalm 118 that we'll look at. Where they are sharing is really a run that begins in verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. All that speaks to the triumphal entry. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The term Hosanna means save now. That is what the people are crying out to the Messiah. Save now. They're screaming out this verse, these two verses. Look over at verse 9. Or verse 8. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. He's a different kind of king. I don't want to beat this one thing to, to the ground, but I just love the idea that Jesus Christ is a king Put every man aside. Don't put your trust in any man. 
There is no ruler on earth who has ever been, is now, or will ever be that we can actually fully put our trust in. It is only the Lord. It is only the Lord. He's the only one who rules righteously, mercifully, and completely. So in this psalm, save now. Oh Lord, Hosanna. Back to Luke 19. Verse 39, And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. He's quoting Habakkuk. The praise of the Messiah is going to come. God doesn't need man. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. As he's coming in from Bethany, into Jerusalem down the road, you can see Jerusalem in the distance. You can almost oversee it as you come down. And this is what he says. If you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave, you, leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps over Jerusalem. This time has been prepared. This time has been spoken of. They've been warned. They've, they should be prepared. And they're looking for him, but they're looking for the wrong Messiah. And look what he calls it. This your day, if you had known the things that make for your peace. He's come to bring peace to the people. And they're looking for something else. They're looking for something else. And all these things that he said actually have happened, hasn't it? temple was knocked down to the ground. They've, they've, they've lost their position. Continuing on, he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. See, now we've got the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. People are coming to bring their sacrifice, but they don't have one, so they've got to Buy it. So what the people are doing in the, in the outer court of the temple, this is the area where the Gentiles are actually allowed to go. They're ripping people off, exchanging money or selling them the animals. This is just like in the beginning of his ministry. The same thing was happening. And he went in and he made the cords out of ropes and whipped them and drove them out and flipped everything over and drove them out. Now here's, he comes back again three years later and the same thing is happening again. And he drives them out. There's a beautiful picture of what he's doing here in the temple as we look at what he's doing, why he has come at this time. He is pushing out man's corruption of what God has implemented. So it doesn't need to be anymore. You know, God put in place the sacrifice system, as we know, because man is broken and needs a, an atonement 
to have fellowship with God. And now man has taken it and ripped off other men so that they could offer their, their sacrifices. It's an abomination to God. And Jesus says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. This is a place where people come to worship God. This continues to speak to the message and the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's not about setting people from Rome. It's setting people free from religion. He's come to break the pattern that does not need to be done anymore. These are self-benefiting religious leaders who exploited and extorted people. And he drives them out. It's this, this kind of goes more to the first time he went to the temple, but it happens both times, I think. There's a, a songwriter, named, a musician named Derek Webb, Christian musician, and he wrote this song in the, in the first person accounting of Jesus Christ in his life. Uh, and he, he wrote a verse that the first time I heard it was like a punch in the gut to me. And I'm going to try and share it with you. Hopefully it has the same impact. But he says, I found thieves and salesmen living in my father's house. And I know how they got in here. And I know how to get them out. So I'm turning this place over from floor to balcony. And then, just like these doves and sheep, you will be set free. There's a picture here that these sacrifices are not needed anymore. When Jesus flips everything over, you know what? They lost all the animals and doves that they were selling too. It was all driven out. So as Jesus drives the corruption of man, that what he's taken that God has given and made it ugly, there's a picture as Jesus drives them out that we are not bound by these sacrifices that cannot take away our sins. He does. He does. He drives it out. It's such a beautiful picture. I'm going to jump ahead to Luke 22, please. Again, I want to encourage you to spend time this week in all the Gospels of this week. There's so much in there. If you spend a little time each day. But now, in Luke 22, beginning in verse 7, we get to the, Jesus spending the Passover with his disciples. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. We're actually up to Thursday in the week now. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. Exodus 12 initiates the Passover. This is when God tells Moses to prepare for the people to leave. We turn to Exodus 12, please. I'm going to read this. It's kind of, I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but I want to get the picture because come, this coming weekend, Passover begins. As Gentiles, or as Larry so delicately put it last week, sinners, we don't observe Passover. Um, Messianic Jews typically still do today, but it's important. The Passover is the critical piece to understanding Calvary. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, 
On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. So again, if you're just not familiar, this is so that the angel of death passes over their homes so they can be set free from Egypt. The purpose of the Passover lamb is so when the angel of death, who comes to kill the firstborn in Egypt, sees the blood of the lamb, he passes over their homes. If you go over to 24, uh, same chapter, yep, Exodus 12, 24. Thanks for asking. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Then you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our household. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. I'm looking for a verse that I wanted to speak on. So go back to 17. I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. My bad. It's kind of complicated what I'm trying to find. Um, Go back to 15. 14. I'm working on it. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done in them, but that which everyone must eat. That only must be prepared for you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on the same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe that day throughout your generation of the everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month of evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses. And whoever eats what is leaven, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation, whether he is a stranger or native of the land. So through all this chapter, I'll still jump around, I apologize. What we find is, there's a day where they get the lamb, and they put it aside for four days. This is to examine it and ensure that it is spotless. It's not grab a lamb and offer it. The Passover lamb must be spotless. So God institutes four days of putting it aside and watching it. Then they also participate in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus came in on Sunday. Passover was on Thursday. It's four days from when he comes into Jerusalem before he's arrested. He doesn't stay in Jerusalem for the week. He goes back to Bethany every night. He keeps himself pure. When they say prepare for the Passover, what they actually do is they go through their homes and they find any leaven, a crumb, that has to be removed. So when they prepare for the Passover, it's not just getting the lamb ready. It's actually cleaning out all leaven. There can only be unleavened bread in the home. 
The Passover is a sacred remembrance. So you purchase the lamb on the tenth day, four days before Passover. Christ came on a colt, never ridden by anyone. He cleaned out the temple, and he did not stay in Jerusalem, but it was four days. You go back to Luke 22. The We'll read verse 15 and then I'll comment. So now they're in the upper room. They prepared for the Passover. Now they're celebrating the Passover. In verse 14, when the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And then he said to them with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. The Passover is a celebration. This is not like the Day of Atonement, which is a day of mourning for the Jews. It's a day of sin. This is the Passover. This is the day that they are celebrating that God has set them free. And God ordained that they do it every year and never, ever forget. Christ says, I fervently desire to share this with you. The Passover is a meal that is shared. The Passover is a, it's not something that someone goes off and does by themselves and remembers the Passover. The word fervently, it's almost like in the more literal translation, Jesus is saying, I have desired to desire to eat this with you. It's desire upon desire. With my very depth of my passion and my heart, I've wanted to share this with you. I think the with you is the important part. He wants to share this with his disciples before he suffers. It's a celebration. And though we do not partake of the Passover, we do partake of what he institutes next. He took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. There's an obvious reason why he's doing this at the exact time that they're observing Passover. There's a picture there for us to recognize. The Passover was to be observed regularly to remember the redemption of God, only by God, from Egypt to set the people free. The Lord's Supper is the remembrance that we observe every week to remember the redemption we have in Jesus Christ. That there no longer needs to be a Passover lamb. Jesus Christ put to death the law of the Passover. The Jews can observe it in remembrance and gratitude of God, but that's not what sets people free anymore. You can remember it, but it's not the, the, the point. It's a picture of what Christ was to do. That's the only reason why it was given. And now it's the point for us to remember what he has done. And we get to share in it together. Just like the Passover. I fervently desire to share this with you. And then he breaks bread in the cup and he institutes the Lord's Supper. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11.
This is taken out of context a little bit. Paul is admonishing the Corinthian church for their uh, inappropriate use of the Lord's Supper. But there's a critical verse in here for us to live by. Verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Here we go. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. We get to proclaim, proclaim, exalt, shout out, amplify, rejoice that Jesus Christ offered himself on the cross. Every single time we get to remember. And it doesn't have to be so solemn. It's, not a t- it's like the Passover. It's a celebration. It's not a day of atonement. I actually made a mistake once of wishing a Jewish coworker happy Yom Kippur. <laughs> Everybody worked with me like, dude. I'm like, ah, let's try to be nice. Um, the Passover meal, the Lord's Supper, there to be shared amongst the believers, but it is to be celebrated. It is a celebration. If he fervently desired to have it with them, How does he feel about having it with us? It's a beautiful picture. It's an absolutely beautiful picture. I want to jump ahead a little bit. Look at my notes. Listen, it's wonderful to remember the Passover and realize what it is. But we get to remember the Passover lamb the one who went to the cross. We get to proclaim that all the time. I hope we don't take it for granted. I think it's something insignificant that I can take or leave it. Maybe it's not a good time. Um, This is not meant to be a guilt trip. It's meant to be an encouragement of the privilege we have, the absolute privilege we have to celebrate what Jesus Christ has done, his passion. When we look at the cross itself, And we take the collection of the statements of Jesus Christ from the cross. His first utterance after the abuse, the punches, the spitting, the mocking, the scourging. The scourging is the one that gets me. If you don't know what scourging is, they take leather straps and they tie bone, metal, glass, anything that's sharp, and they tie it to the end of the rip, or the whips. So when they whip the person, it hooks into their body and rips their flesh. And he endured that over and over again. We talk about Christ's passion. He suffered. It's an indication of the magnitude of the magnitude of our sin that had to be atoned for. It took more than someone saying, okay, I'll die. Put me down. God demonstrates his hatred and the righteous judgment that is due the wickedness of man's hearts. 
All that opposes God. All that is against God. And Jesus bore it all. As the Old Testament was quoted by Paul, he became a curse for us on the tree. Whoever hangs on a tree is cursed. That's the law. So when they hung him on a cross, he fulfilled that law. He became sin on our behalf. Him who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. So he endured the scourging. He endured the mockery. Oh, if you're the king, get yourself down. They gambled for his clothes as he was crucified up there, probably naked, humiliated. Now that he's beaten to the point where he's unidentifiable. If you knew him his whole life, you'd look at him and you wouldn't know him. That's how bad he was beaten. And if we turn over to chapter 23... Of Luke, yep. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. That's the Passover lamb. I'm not going to make us flip through all the through the Gospels. His next utterance comes later in the day, as he's been hanging there for hours, and he cries out, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani?" We get a taste of the agony. Just a clue as to the torture and the agony he's enduring. He cries, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then it is finished. I studied this, and the only conclusion I could come to is the triumphal entry, I almost think, is a contradiction as a label, because it should be the triumphal exit. He didn't come in for people to scream Hosanna. He came in to die on a cross and rise again on the third day. So when they cried out, Hosanna, save now. Thinking that there would be victory because they were throwing palm trees down. There was. It's not the kind they were looking for. Jesus Christ had victory because he rose again on the third day. Victory over the grave. Victory over death. Victory over judgment. Triumphal exit.
Christ's passion. Christ's suffering. We see suffering every day. There have been natural disasters that have just left people with no clean water, no electricity, (laughs) no Wi-Fi. There's people who are ill without insurance. There's people going through all kinds of awful problems. And it's suffering. And we need to be the ones who bring mercy and compassion. But I will say this. There's a difference. His suffering changed my life. His life changed my eternal destiny. My suffering is not going to change your life. Well, then maybe give you an opportunity to share some generosity. But we're still going to go through whatever we go through. When we think of Christ's passion, let's take this time to remember that his suffering has brought us tremendous benefit and blessing because now if we have put our trust in him, we have the personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The triumphal entry led him to that week, to the time where he would be crucified. Praise the Lamb. I'm going to close in prayer and uh, give thanks for the food as well. So then we'll be dismissed to uh, go downstairs. I hope you will stay for the chapel luncheon today. Let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you so much for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the suffering servant who came to do your will. Who came that lost sinners could be saved and redeemed and purchased by his own blood. So as we think of his passion, we think of what he suffered and endured. We're so very thankful. We're so very thankful for a Messiah who did not come to conquer as a ruling king with an army, but came as one to lead with grace and mercy, to lead people to you, to live in hearts, to change the brokenhearted, to heal, to lift up, So, Father, we thank you as we remember this time and we prepare for the remembrance of the most amazing day when they all went to see him thinking they were going to prepare a dead body and that tomb was empty. We rejoice. Hallelujah. Thank you for the Lamb. Lord, we ask you to bless this meal that we will share today. We pray you bless the ministries here at Brantford Bible Chapel. Thank you for the work, for the servants, for the hearts, and for all that you do here. Lord, we exalt you today in Jesus' name. Amen.